Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, has Britain officially become a police state? Now, that might seem like an over-egged question, but here is the fact. Thanks to legislation introduced by Home Secretary Suella Braverman, officers will now have the power to restrict any protest that could cause, and I quote, more than minor hindrance or delay. Now, critics say this law was introduced by the back door. It was implemented through what's known as secondary legislation, which doesn't go through the same level of scrutiny as primary legislation. We're going to speak in a moment to Katie Watts, a lawyer at the human rights campaign group Liberty, who are challenging this through the courts. Before we do, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Get details about subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then, Katie. And for people who are not au fait with the background to this story, just tell us how we got to here. Well, there's quite a long and complex background to this legislative change, but it all started back in 2021 with the Policing Act, which came into force last year. And the government in that act gave themselves the power to amend the definition of serious disruption at a minister's discretion. And we were concerned when we saw that in the Policing Act, which, as was well documented at the time, contained wide-reaching new powers to control and and limit protest rights. But we didn't see that power exercised initially. And then what happened last year and beginning of this year was that the government very quickly introduced another anti-protest bill, Public Order Act. And in the passage of that act, they tried to define serious disruption by this new definition that you mentioned at the beginning as any impact that is more than minor. And that amendment was debated and ultimately voted out of the bill by the Lords. Before the Public Order Act had even received royal assent back in April, the government had brought back the definition by way of secondary legislation using that power they'd given themselves a couple of years ago. And as you said, that really feels like trying to do it by the back door, something which has been explicitly rejected by Parliament. And yet the House of Lords felt that it could not overturn this legislation. It passed the law with regret, but it felt that it was not its constitutional place to overturn legislation of a democratically elected government. Yeah, I mean, that's the constitutional difficulty here, is that the Lords obviously have voted on this exact provision when it was part of the Public Order Act and rejected it. And this is the first time we think ever that something has been brought back by secondary legislation, which has already been rejected by the legislature, by Parliament. Obviously, as you say, the Lords had an opportunity to vote on it as part of the secondary legislation process. But that is quite a different process from the process that primary legislation goes through. There is less time for debate and scrutiny, no possibility of amendment. And there is a sort of constitutional convention that the Lords don't reject statutory instruments made by the government. And that's why in the debate yesterday, there were expressions of regret, but ultimately the Lords didn't vote it down because of that kind of constitutional convention and their role as the unelected upper house. But I think what we have to remember is that they did vote on it when it was brought forward properly as primary legislation and they rejected it. Just talk us through 
in practice what this law will mean and why you as Liberty are now challenging it through the courts? So the new definition will mean that the police are able to take into account any impact of a protest that is more than minor on the community. And that impact, that disruption, which is more than minor, doesn't even have to be directly linked or a cause of the protest. It could actually be any disruption taking place in the vicinity at the time of the planned or proposed protest. So it could simply be that you're planning to have a protest in a a busy part of town or somewhere where there, you know, is notoriously bad traffic. And so what it means really is that the police are going to have almost complete discretion over the limits and controls and conditions that they can place on protest because they'll be able to take into account such a wide range of potential more than minor disruption that they'll be able to impose conditions which could limit the numbers of people able to attend the protest. It could reroute marches, require protests to take place in, in different locations, maybe away from the sites of power that they're directed at. And ultimately, the consequences for protesters of not complying with any conditions that are imposed are criminal sanctions. And that was something, again, which was changed by the Policing Act a couple of years ago, that that there are now much more strict criminal sanctions for failing to comply with conditions which you ought to have known about. The Home Secretary argued that this legislation was needed because of tactics by Just Stop oil protesters of very slow marches. Is there any other way that that tactic could be challenged? And is there a case for saying that people can't hold the rest of society hostage? I mean, the first thing to say is that the police already have extremely wide powers when it comes to controlling and criminalising protesters. There are a range of public order offences, including obstructing the highway, which have and are being used against just stop oil protesters. And then the second thing to say is that what we've seen over recent years is that as the government cracks down on protesters, all that happens is that you drive campaign groups and protest organisations to come up with ever more creative ways to make their voices heard. I think the government has even acknowledged that the more they crack down on protest, the more creative protesters are going to have to be. Protest isn't going to go away. All that's happening is that the government is making it far more difficult for ordinary people to have their voices heard and really creating an environment which is very hostile to protesters. You'll know, though, that in some quarters anyway, this kind of legislation will have backing. There will be newspapers and pundits who will say, look, don't block the pavement, don't get in my way. I don't want to have to deal with your protest. We all have the right to have our voices heard about issues which concern us. And no protest is going to be effective unless it's noticed, unless you inconvenience somebody. And the other thing to say is that there are a huge range of really important issues facing us today. The cost of living crisis, climate change. These are important issues that the government is not dealing effectively with. So the only way for people to have their voices heard and to demand action from the government is through protest. Instead of dealing with those issues, the government is choosing to to crack down on, on protesters and people's right to freedom of expression. Some people have said that it does look like or feel like a police state. That question I posed in my introduction, you know, is it over-egging it to talk in those terms? Are people getting it a little bit out of context? No, I don't think so. I think when you look at, obviously, the regulations which came into force today, combined with some of the extreme new provisions in the Public Order Act, 
which criminalize protest tactics like locking on, attaching yourself to another protester, tactics used by the suffragettes, which hand dramatically new wide powers to the police to stop and search people within the vicinity of protests, then I think it does start to look like an extremely authoritarian response to protest movements. On what basis do you think you can challenge this in the courts? So our arguments really focus on the constitutional issues with the way in which these regulations have been passed. The fact that these regulations, or this definition, sorry, were were debated by and rejected by, by our legislature. And as I've said, there's no previous examples that we've been able to find where Parliament has rejected something which has been subsequently brought back through the back door by secondary legislation. So we argue that that undermines parliamentary sovereignty. We also argue that the power that the Home Secretary has to make these regulations hinges on her power to define serious disruption by way of making you know, examples of what could constitute it, but actually defining it as anything that's more than minor is not really the normal understanding of serious. And actually we would say it lowers the threshold for when conditions can be imposed. It does more than define it. And then finally, the government did consult on this amendment, but that consultation, which which took place between the government, the police, and national highways, was was a pretty one sided affair. And so, we're also arguing that that was that was unfair and, and failed to take into account the voices of protest groups. Aside from the threat to the right to protest, this constitutional issue seems to me to be very important as well because this legislation, because it was introduced as secondary legislation, did not go through traditional scrutiny in the House of Commons, correct? Yeah, that's right. And we think that this this mechanism of ministers giving themselves power in primary legislation to amend that legislation at a later date in a way which involves very little scrutiny, no possibility of amendment, is already something which is often problematic. And I think what we're very concerned about here is that this potentially just opens the door to government to do this again, that anything that they can't get through the legislature, they can simply do by executive decree, as long as they have passed bills which are wide enough and broad enough and vague enough to give themselves the power to come along and amend it at their whim at a later date. Yeah, so just to unpick though then, this sets the precedent whereby you introduce primary legislation, it is scrutinised, through both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It is then defeated by the House of Lords, whose job is to check and scrutinise laws as they're drafted. So it, it, at that point, would traditionally then fall. But if you reintroduce it then as secondary legislation, you bypass that scrutiny stage. And because the Lords feels that it cannot object to something that has been put forward by a democratically elected government, at the second attempt, you get it through. So if it can work for laws around protest, it could, in theory, work for anything that the government wishes to bring forward. It is, it seems to me, bypassing the role of parliament itself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as I said, the ultimate power that enables the Home Secretary to do this was a a clause in the Policing Act, which said, a minister may define this at a later date and amend the act. And the precedent that could be set is exactly that, that as long as Parliament is passing 
vague pieces of legislation containing clauses which allow ministers to come along and amend the meaning of that legislation at a later date, then things which they can't explicitly get through Parliament, they can do so by what's essentially an executive decree at a later point. How could the House of Lords overturn this clause on the first occasion but then when it's reintroduced to secondary legislation, feel that they weren't able to overturn it? As I said, I mean, there was an interesting debate last night and not not all lords agreed that they didn't have the power to reject it. But I think ultimately, as I said, constitutional convention is that the lords don't reject secondary legislation. And that's because secondary legislation is usually used to fill in the gaps in primary legislation to make you know detailed regulations about the meaning of things and what this clause does is although it's a definition it's a definition which really fundamentally changes the meaning of that piece of primary legislation so actually it goes far beyond what secondary legislation is usually used for but because it's been done by secondary legislation the lords felt that they they had to abide by that constitutional convention and and not vote against it. Katie, thank you so much for explaining that. We shall see what happens with your court action as well. That's Katie Watts, a lawyer at Liberty. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast produced by We Bring Audio. Don't forget, the Byline Times podcast is supported by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. Get details about how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. We'll see you again very soon, but for now... Thanks for listening and goodbye.